Folks, can I encourage you to grab a Bible there and open it up at this passage uh, in Ephesians 3? It'll be really helpful for you just to have it in front of you as I refer to a few verses here and there uh, along the way. Notice the way that Paul begins this passage. So he's writing this letter while under a two-year house arrest. He's a prisoner of Rome. He's awaiting trial before Caesar. You know, put yourself in his shoes. He's, that's his circumstance. And he's waiting all of this that lies ahead. He's a prisoner. But in verse 1 here, notice then, he, he describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. Now, remember who this is, okay? He used to be Saul. He used to be the prestigious, highly respected, much feared Pharisee who set out in his own power and strength to, to do what? To cripple, to absolutely decimate the church of Jesus Christ, to turn Jesus' followers into prisoners. But here now, Paul stands. He's a faithful follower of Christ himself. He is a servant of the Lord. He is a prisoner for the sake of Christ and the gospel. So this is a man who has been utterly transformed by Jesus. And you get this real clear sense, don't you, from really all of Paul's writing that his life is not his own. He sees his life as belonging to the Lord. My life, I have it, but it's Christ's to do what he wishes with. So that's true even when he's in chains. He's not angry that he's in chains. He's not impatient about being in this circumstance. Rather, he seems to be content somehow. Well, how? It's because he trusts in the Lord, isn't it? He trusts in the Lord's plans. I wonder, folks, is the same true for us in our lives today? For those of us who are followers of Jesus, are we willing to trust in him no matter what our circumstances are? Are we willing to deny ourselves no matter where it might take us or lead us? You know, I think probably all of us could say the words, I'm willing to be a prisoner of Christ for the sake of others. But would we still feel like that, if it literally meant being in chains? Would we still feel that way? Now, in Paul's case here, what makes this especially joyful, I mean, it's mad to say that this is a joyful scenario for Paul, but it seems to be, and it's really because it's for the sake of others. It's the sake of the Gentile people. That's what he says in verse 1. So, God has asked Paul to bring a message to the Gentile world that would change their lives forever. But notice what Paul says in verse 2. It wasn't just a message, was it? He calls it an administration of God's grace. Isn't that beautiful language? Paul's mission given to him by the Lord was to like pass on the grace of God himself. Folks, can there be any higher calling than doing such a thing? 
And notice crucially then how Paul downplays himself in this whole endeavor. So he says in verse 2, it's a grace that was given me. And in verse 3, he then says, it's a mystery that I'm only aware of because of God's revelation to me. So Paul doesn't want there to be any uncertainty. He doesn't want any credit whatsoever. This is not just some radical little idea that he's dreamt up of to include the Gentiles somehow. It's not some misguided notion to like twist the gospel of Jesus and make it more palatable to a non-Jewish audience. He's not trying to just boost the numbers in the early church. We'll let anyone in here. This will be great. Paul says, this is the way that it's always been. This was the plan from the very beginning. And it was the Lord's, not mine, not the other apostles, not the disciples. It was God's plan. The grace that you're all receiving, it doesn't come from me. It comes from a loving heavenly father. Now, here's the thing, though. In one sense, on one level, this, this message, this action that Paul is doing here, this is a real test of his faith, his commitment to Christ, because this message was deeply unpopular, deeply unpopular. And that is especially true amongst the Jews of that day. You see, at this point, a lot of the Jews, they felt like they had a monopoly on God. So all these promises of old through their prophets, through their ancestors, well, it was all about the Jewish people, wasn't it? God's true people were the Jews of Israel, they thought. So many of them then were in opposition to what Paul was saying. But folks, listen to this principle. Paul trusted in the revelation of God over and above public opinion. Paul trusted in the revelation of God over and above what people said. It didn't matter what the Jews thought. It didn't matter if they had some kind of internal bias. It didn't matter how hated Paul might become in sharing this message. And I wonder again, folks, is that a challenge for us as well, for you and for me? Where do we see public opinion clashing against God's word? Where do we see tension between what the world says and what the Bible teaches? We live in times when society around us shouts very loudly. And actually, in some cases, our society around us even wants to tell us in the church how to interpret the Word of God. And they do it in such a way that it's according to their worldly principles and worldly agendas. So the rule that we see in our society seems to be if the majority of people think a certain thing, then it kind of must be good. It must be moral on some level. It must be the right course of action because the majority of people think like this. But actually, that's not at all what the Bible would teach in any way. The only way we can be sure of what is right and wrong 
is by understanding the infallible word of God. Folks, this is a lesson we must learn from Paul here. He was committed to whatever God had revealed to him by his word, no matter how unpopular, even if it means he's going to end up in chains, losing his freedoms. I don't care because I'm committed to what the Lord says. Folks, again, I'm asking, I'm asking myself as much as anyone else, are we willing to do the same? Do we have that kind of commitment, that loyalty, that allegiance to God and his word? Are we prepared to let the people in our lives know that we trust in God's word? We believe it. We believe it to be true, absolute truth, even, even if they're offended by it. This takes real courage. It takes real resolve, but we know, don't we, that the Holy Spirit lives in here. He goes with those who are truly followers of Jesus, those who belong to Jesus. He gives us courage to stand up for Christ. So what precisely was Paul's message then here? Well, this mystery, as he calls it, was quite simply that the Gentiles were to be included in this salvation plan. So in verse 6, he says, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body, and beautiful language, sharers together in the promise in Christ. So it's highly inclusive language here, isn't it? Does our God value equality? Does he value equality? I think a lot of people, perhaps on the outside of church, would say no to that question. But Paul is screaming, yes, he does. And this is the central thrust of this particular portion of Ephesians. Paul wants this to be as clear as day. The Gentiles are welcome to come to God. They can approach this God. God is not exclusive. He is not just God of Israel. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But folks, here's the crucial point that we all have got to recognize. The cross makes this a reality. The cross and the cross alone. Because it was on the cross that Jesus paid this penalty for our sin. He made atonement at one moment. We were made one with the Lord. He made atonement for the sin of all believers. So we mentioned this with the, the kids, 1 John 2, 2. Trying to get this into your mind. 1 John 2, 2. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's the truth of the gospel. And so that includes then, that envelopes the Gentiles into this gospel promise. They are heirs with Israel, according to Paul. That means they have a right, a right, a legal right to an inheritance. And it's an inheritance that awaits us in heaven. Treasure in jars of clay where moths, where rust cannot destroy. 
Folks, why is this important? Why is this important to us here, sitting here in Ravenhill, 21st century? Well, I'm assuming here something about us that none of us are Jewish people. And so therefore, we don't have to wonder, are we included in this? We don't have to ask, is this just for the people of Israel? Am I able to be a part of this in any way? Paul makes it clear, we're one body. We're all sharers in the promise. What promise? Well, all these promises that Jesus has made. I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. I will take you to be with me where I am. Nothing can snatch you out of my Father's hand. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. And on and on and on these promises go. And they are for all of us. Every single one of us. Folks, it doesn't matter our race, our skin color. It doesn't matter our heritage, our education, our gender, our bank balance, our job title, our social standing. It's all irrelevant when it comes to our salvation. Paul says in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not to say that he's denying that these things exist. Of course, there are genders. Of course, there are nationalities and so on. But he's saying the promises of Christ break through these barriers. They shatter these barriers. Barriers that we well know our world around us wants to emphasize again and again and again and again and again and twist and distort and emphasize again and again and again, but our identity in Christ trumps all of that. Let's not be in any, any doubt then. Jesus brings salvation for every tongue, tribe, and nation. His grace, his mercy, his love, they're given to anyone who desires to know him. So Jesus says things like, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened up to you, to anyone who does it. Now let's have one final quick look here at verses 10 to 13. Paul says, it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. It's through the church the church is to be a witness to God's glorious plan of salvation. So the church was never, ever designed to be like a big bunch of people separated out into different sections, maybe nationality or social class or gender even or whatever it might be. Rather, we're one. We are one together. We're all the same in the sense that we're human beings made in the image of God, and we are sinners who through faith are made perfect by His grace. So our church communities then ought to 
reflect this massively. That must be one of the first things that people see about us, our godly culture of unity. It enables us then to be better witnesses to the world. But notice then, rather bizarrely, notice who the church is to be witnesses to. You see it in verse 10? It's not witnesses to the world, actually. It's witnesses to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's an incredible thought. Listen to what uh, the commentator Brian Chappell says about this. He put it beautifully, and I just wanted to quote it directly. He says this, The heavenly hosts are to look at those of us in the church with all of our sin and differing personalities and cultural prejudices and color differences and say, how did God do that? How did he get such disagreeable creatures together in one body to praise him? Isn't that amazing? Folks, in a world of division and discrimination, the church of all places should be leading the way in harmony. And that's because the thing that unites us is much greater than anything that might divide. And what is that thing? Verse 12, through faith in Christ, we find freedom and confidence. So we believe that we have been ransomed, restored, and forgiven by the blood of Jesus on the cross. He has won everything for us that we need for our salvation. He made us alive though we were dead in transgressions and sins. And he has given us new purpose, new meaning, new identity even. Folks, this is the church that Jesus has established on the earth. And it's a united one, one with a central focus on Christ and the cross. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in Gethsemane for the believers? John 17, he says, I pray for those who will believe in me that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That closeness that Son and Father have, we can have that with Son and Father and with one another. Jesus prays that we might be one. So we might have our cultural differences, and we might even, heaven forbid, disagree about what football team to support, but we're all sinners saved by grace, and because of that grace, we find freedom we find confidence that we can stand before this holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so clearly, so frankly to us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself by your word. We thank you that we don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder what you are thinking, wonder what you are teaching about this, about that, about the other, because you've made it so clear. Father, we thank you that 
Jesus has so acted on our behalf. He went to the cross. He took all the blame. He perished. He took all of your wrath and he did it all for us. We thank you for this mystery of grace. And we thank you as Gentiles of today that we are included in this promise along with your people of Israel. We thank you that it is by faith that we enter this. It's not by birthright. It's not by nationality. But it's only by faith in what Jesus has done for us. And we thank you that combined with that, then you haven't asked us to earn it in some way or to prove ourselves in some way. Rather, you accept us as we are, totally sinful. Unable to do anything in our own strength. Father, what grace is this? What is man that you would be mindful of him? Lord, we humbly bow before you now. We thank you. And we pray that here in this church family, unity would abound. We pray for these things that truly do unite us, that they would be front and center always. And that as we have little disagreements about this, about that, about things that are not, not centrally important, that we would do it gently, we would do it respectfully, and lovingly even, because we know that Christ and the cross are what truly matters. Lord, finally, we pray that our unity here would be a wonderful witness to the world, that people on the outside of these walls, that people living in the streets around would just sense there's something godly here about this community. There's something joyous about these people. And actually then that we might be able to share with them, the thing is Jesus. It's Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.